love. Can you think of a more powerful word in the human language? It's a word that inspires people to work, to give, to provide, to protect, to participate, to sacrifice. It's a word that we use to describe marriage and family life and to describe friendship and team chemistry and even affection for pets and most significantly, Christian fellowship. The Apostle John has written this letter to the early church Christians in Ephesus and in the surrounding region to inspire them to not just accept everything they, that they hear people saying about Jesus. Instead, in 1 John chapter 4, 1-6, through 6, we are told that we're to test this teaching by relying on the guidance of the Holy Spirit to determine if it's actually true or not. And here in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-21, through 21, the apostle discusses the primary trait that separates those who know God from those who do not. And he says, it is love. Multiple times in this section of this letter, John tells us that God is love. And that once a person experiences God's love firsthand, it completely changes their outlook on life. And it motivates them to share God's love with others. Well, at this juncture, I feel a need for a disclaimer because love is a word that is so often misused and misunderstood in our world. We can actually say that we love our spouse and we love our children in the same breath that we say that we love chocolate and coffee. Too often, love in our society is viewed as being strictly sentimental, what I call hallmarkish, like the Hallmark movies or the Hallmark cards, you know, with a lot of hugging and kissing and tears and acceptance and forgiveness and glossing over of the hurtful actions and unpleasant realities that are there. Someone has defined this cultural sentimental love as feeling without responsibility. Well, God's love is different than this. Yes, to be sure, God's love is accepting and forgiving, but you know God's love is also demanding. It's true. God loves us just the way we are but He loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And here John tells us that God's love is redemptive. It saves us, but it also is transformative because it changes our lives to become people that we weren't previously. God's love, he says, is pure, and it's always governed by the truth, and we need to experience that before we can export it to others. In fact, the Apostle John is going to go as far as saying if a person is not exporting the love of God to others, then they've never experienced God's love in the first place. Love, he says, is the test of true Christian faith. And why is this important? Why is this true? Well, John says, because God is love. Verses 7 and 8, dear friends, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God for God is love. Verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Now, in the Bible, there are four expressions telling us directly about the nature of God. One is in a reference in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, which actually quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, that our God is a consuming fire. And this is a phrase that the Israelites had heard on a number of occasions from Moses. And it is something that they also observed both in the spoken word and then in the literal observing of God in this way. It was all tied to the glory of God. 
Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, Moses is informing the Israelites that he's not going to go into the promised land because God was upset with him and how he had acted on a few occasions or one occasion specifically in their wilderness wanderings. But what he is strongly advising the Israelites to do at that time is to keep their covenant with God and by all means not to worship idols. And he says in verse 24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Moses was reminding the Israelites in this text that God is not someone to be trifled with. Now, this notion of the wrath of God is not a popular subject in our day and age, but it does loom large in the biblical teaching. One of the dangers Christians face is that it's so easy to think of God's compassion and love that we miss God's implacable opposition to evil. You know, I've talked recently with some ministers who believe that the church should be adopting many of the practices of acceptance and tolerance and even some of the social justice of our culture right now. And they also believe we should endorse acts of immorality that the Bible abhors in the name of love. We should do that. And their standard refrain is always, what are you afraid of? That you're afraid of something, Pastor Darrell. That's what's keeping you from doing this. What is it that you are afraid of? It's fear that guides you. And I tell them, yes, you're exactly right. It is fear that that guides me and drives me. It's the fear of God. Because God and His Word are not to be trifled with. You know, the three other expressions that we see of the nature of God in the Bible are found in John's writings. The first is in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 24, where we learn that God is spirit. See, this refers to God's being, that God is not flesh and blood like we are. Uh, His nature is spirit. That's what God is in being. And God is not bound then by space and time like we happen to be bound. God can be everywhere at the same time. Theologians have a big word for this. They call it omnipresence. God is here and He's all over the world, all at the same time. Now, in our second sermon in this sermon series through 1 John that we are calling the God of light and love, we learned about the second expression of John's uh, regarding the nature of God. And that was in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. God is light. And light in the Bible is a symbol of holiness, while darkness is a symbol for sin. And God, therefore, is incapable of sin because God is holy. And since we've been born into God's family and we receive God's nature, uh, we become, because we're like God, we are to be holy. Not to, to be sinful, but to be holy like God is holy. Now, the third expression in the writings of John regarding God's nature is right here. And we've read it already in verse 8 and verse 16 of chapter 4. God is love. Now, I must say that this does not mean that love is God, nor does it mean because two people love each other that their love is necessarily holy, because it's been correctly stated that love does not define God. God defines love, and God is love, and God is light. And as John teaches, this is why we have called this sermon series The God of Light and Love. And that's why we have to understand all of these expressions of God's nature in conjunction with one another. Because God is love and God is light, therefore His love is a holy love and His holiness is expressed in love. All that God does 
expresses who God is. Even God's judgments as the consuming fire are measured out in love and mercy. You know, in the prophet Jeremiah's five poems of sorrow, that's the book of Lamentations, where he's lamenting and he's agonizing as the weeping prophet over the fall of Jerusalem and Judea at the hands of the Babylonians and people being carted off into Babylonian exile. And after countless prophetic warnings from him and Isaiah and many other prophets, it still happened. But he is pointing out here in his lament that God is love. Remember what Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says? Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In the midst of judgment, he's talking about God's great love and compassion and God's faithfulness. And we always apply this text to ourselves devotionally, which is the correct thing to do. It's appropriate. But this passage speaks as well to God's faithfulness to His own nature. And I say all of this today to highlight that much of what is called love in the modern world bears no resemblance whatsoever to the holy spiritual love of God. You know, there are festivals and parades and even community activities with slogans of God's love or love wins or that God is love where people are displaying and promoting all kinds of immorality and self-centered behavior and basically doing their own thing and then trying to dignify it by calling it love. And by the way, all the things that I've just illustrated for you existed in Ephesus and the churches in that historic region that this letter was written to. They had the temple of Artemis with all kinds of idolatrous and immoral worship practices. And some were done in the name of love. And they had the influence of Greek philosophy as well, which separated body and spirit. And all these influences impacted a group known as the Gnostics who were infiltrating these early churches and promoting sin and immorality as, as not being harmful to the spirit. You can do whatever you want in the body because it's separate from the spirit. You can't harm the spirit. Now, some of the behavior was beginning to negatively impact these churches. So John says, this is not of God, and this is not how God's children behave. Look at verse 20 and 21. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and their sister. And he said in verse 19, what's driving all of this, we love because he first loved us. And earlier he stated that Christian love is a special kind of love. Look at verse 10 with me. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, this could be, could be translated, in this way is seen true love. Love that is born out of the very essence of God. That love is spiritual. It's holy because God is spirit and God is light. And this is the kind of love that John says is the test of the true Christian faith. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. And if I were to paraphrase that verse 8 there, I would say everyone who loves is born of God. They have a personal and experiential knowledge of God. And the person who does not have this divine kind of love does not know the first thing. 
about God. To be a Christian is to be personally affected by our relationship with God. We ought to become what God is, and God is love. Now look at verse 9 here. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. The greatest expression of God's love is the sending of His Son, Jesus, and Jesus who went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. John 15, verse 13 says, No greater love is anyone than this, than would lay down their life for a friend. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrated His love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9 says there, This is how God showed That's the word manifest. This is how God revealed to us, how He made it public, how He brought it out into the open. So why was Jesus revealed? 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 has already answered that for us. But you know that He appeared so that He may take away your sins. And in Him is no sin. And notice verse 9 said, That Jesus was the only son. He was the unique son. He was the one-of-a-kind son. And it tells us in verse 9 and verse 10 that God sent Jesus. Well, we know babies are not sent from another place. They are born. But Jesus was sent to us, and it was no accident. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God is love. And we know God, John says, therefore we should love one another. And this exhortation here is presented to us as both a privilege that we get to experience and it's also presented to us as a responsibility. No one, verse 12 says, has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and His love is made complete in us. Love is the test of true Christian faith. Now, in these remaining verses, this passage is going to teach us, picking up on what's already been said here, but it's going to teach us directly that God desires to live in us. Look at verses 13 through 16. This is how we know that we live in Him and He in us. He has given us His Spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, God does something incredible in them. We become God's participants in God's great display of love in this world. And it is true. God's desire, as you can see there, is to live in us, which means that we live our lives through God and we live like Him and for Him. Now, there's something key that you need to understand here. In the Bible, in the New Testament, there's a word, peripateo. It means to live or it means to walk. Here the word is abide or remain or live. So this is a concept that flows throughout the Bible. And when we start in Genesis, we find Adam and Eve in the garden in paradise, and it tells us that they walked with God. Then we come to a character in the book of of, uh, Genesis named Enoch, and he walked with God. And we see that Noah walked with God. And we are told that Abraham walked with God 
with God. And then we come to the Exodus account, and the Israelites are journeying in the wilderness to the promised land, and we discover that God dwelt with them. He lived with them. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. This, of course, was done through the tabernacle, which was the forerunner of the temple. God dwelt with Israel, but He didn't necessarily dwell in each individual Israelite. Now, when I read verses 13 through 16, did you see that that word live, or some of your translations would say abide, occurred uh, six times in these verses? God lives in His children, and God desires to live in us, and He wants us to live our lives through Him. And then look at what will happen. Three times this is repeated here as well. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and His love is made complete in us. Verse 17, this is how love is made complete among us. The end of verse 18, the one who fears is not made perfect in love, or you could translate that, complete in love. See, God wants this complete, perfected, fulfilled love to be part of our lives and part of Him living through us. And think about this. God's love is not made complete in this world through angels. It's not made complete through angelic beings, but through sinners who are saved by grace. Christians are now the tabernacles. They're now the temples in which God dwells through whom God reveals His love to the world. You know, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan was a famous British minister in a previous century, and he had five sons who all grew up to be pastors. And one time, a, a news reporter was going to do a feature article on them and had all of them together, and he asked what people would think at the time was an obvious question. Which of you is the best preacher in the family? And their immediate response, their united response, was they all said at the same time in unison, mother. Mrs. Morgan, who had never preached a sermon in a church, but to her husband and five sons, she preached the best because her life was a constant sermon of love, the love of God. And the life of a Christian who exercises God's love is a powerful witness for God in this world. You know, people do not get to visibly see God because God is spirit, but they get to see God's love moving His people to acts of compassion helpfulness, kindness, service, and sacrifice. No one, verse 12 says, has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. You know, the world will often not believe in the love of God until they see God's love at work in His children. And many a testimony has been shared over the years highlighting this truth. People who had been told over and over that they were loved by God but they never really believed it until Christians showed them that God loved them. You know, over three decades ago, I officiated at a funeral here of an elderly man in our community who had served in the German army in World War II. And of course, it was forced service. But at the end of that war, he immediately uh, uh, immigrated with his family to America, settling first of all in Iowa, and then later on came up here to farm in our area. But they had kept their family history, a secret. Well, prior to his death, one of his sons lived next to a Christian man in our church who was reaching out to him, sharing his faith, trying to get this man to attend church, and none of that seemed to really work or connect. 
And then this man suffered an injury at work and was unable, uh, because of that, had to have surgery and was unable for a number of months to process his own wood, which was how he heated his house. He couldn't cut his wood, couldn't split his wood, couldn't stack it, couldn't get it in the woodshed, none of that. And this man who was reached out to by a man in our church who we just recently lost, woke up one Saturday morning to see this guy out there cutting up his firewood, splitting his firewood, stacking it in the woodshed, spent days doing that. And that communicated so deeply to this man that he started coming to church. He came to Christ as, long as, as well as his wife did. He ended up being a member of this church for over three decades, all because people loved him and his young family in their time of need. Verse 17 says, This is how love is made complete among us, so that we have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we're like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. It says if we are living for God like this and His love is being poured out through us, we will have this confidence, this boldness, even this freedom of speech. And this is not being brash, brazen, or abrasive. It's confidence in God that we can say the right things in trusting in God and following God's plan for our lives. Then we can be certain that we are taking the right course of action. And this is a reverential fear of God. It's not a tormenting fear. This is like a respect that a child has for a loving parent, not the reaction of a terrified child before a harsh parent. We can have that confidence in when Christ appears. And it talks about fear here. And I have to tell you, for the most part, we have adopted in the English language the Greek word for fear. And that's the word phobia. I happen to be a person who's claustrophobic. So can you imagine a couple of years ago when it was discovered that I had this brain tumor and this arteriovascular malformation and the multiple MRIs I've had. I don't know if you've ever had an MRI, but they jam you into a tube, you know. And for some of you that are skinny and small, it's not such a big deal. But for me with a little broader shoulders, and I mean, I always tell the, uh, the technicians there, the MRI technicians, that I'm bringing my Vaseline next time. I'm going to rub me down so when you get me in there, you can get me out. And then they have to lock my head into this device. And, I mean, there's times when all I've done is swallowed. Oh, stop moving or we're going to have to redo the test. And, and I'm claustrophobic. I, I mean, I got my eyes covered. I got the music blaring as loud as I can. And I have to be in there for an hour and 15 minutes. I have to have multiple ones of those every single year. And then with my back problems, I had to have them. I mean, I was so bold that I asked them, I said, is this good for your body? to have all these MRIs. I know x-rays aren't good to have that many. Well, well, it's different than an x-ray, they tell me. It's different than a CAT scan. So no, you can have these all the time. No, I don't need these all the time. And now I need to have another one. And my wife has been gently reminding me, not nagging me, gently reminding me that I need to schedule my next MRI. And I, every time I take one, I have to get a sedative from the doctor. They got to make me woozy to even go in that thing because I'm claustrophobic. Well, you know, some people have acrophobia. They have fear of heights. Some people have hydrophobia, fear of water. Some have crisis phobia, the fear of judgment, etc., etc. Well, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ does not have to fear the past, the present, or the future because they have experienced the love of Christ and Christ's love through them is being perfected in them day by day. 
And this is truly a remarkable statement when you think about it, that a life that's inspired by God, shaped by Christian discipleship, will exhibit a love that is made complete. C.S. Lewis said this love is that which forgives the most and condones the least. That's God's love. John says that love is the test of Christian faith because God's, God is love, and those who know Him will live in His love. They will reflect God's nature. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love, and whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word, and God, for your word that tells us who you are in your very nature, your very being, that you are a consuming fire, that judgment is part of who you are. God, that you are a spirit, that you're everywhere and omnipresent. God, that you are light, you're holy, and in you is no sin. And God, as well, that you are love, as we've learned here today. And God, we pray that we could come to the place where we would recognize the conjunction of all of these things in your being and recognize that you are the God who wants to live and dwell in us through your Holy Spirit, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, thank you for sending your Son the demonstration of your love. And thank you, God, for communicating to us your desire to dwell within us. And, oh, God, I pray that we could live uh, your love in this world. Uh, this world right now doesn't need more polarization. It doesn't need more conflict or fighting. It needs sisters and brothers in Christ, followers of the Lord Jesus, disciples who are loving one another and loving those around them. Oh, God, I pray for your church to step forward by faith into this call, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.